Luke chapter 15 and beginning in verse 11. And once you find that, I'll have you stand once again as I read this parable for us this morning. As we hear the word of the Lord, we stand in honor of God and his word, and we listen to what God might have for us this morning. So Luke chapter 15, beginning in verse 11, and we'll read to the end of the chapter. So steady yourselves. This is, this is the longest of Jesus's parables. So here we go. All right, Luke 15, verse 11. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had, and he took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, but no one gave him anything. And when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe. Put it on him. Put a ring on his sand. Put shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And the servant said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. He was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I've served you, and I've never disobeyed your command. Yet you've never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. This is God's word. Amen and amen. You may take a seat. You know, there's more in our society, in our mainstream culture of Jesus' teaching that has found root in our culture 
um, phrases that we might take for granted but have come from the Gospels, have come from the teaching of Jesus. And many people in our culture might not even know that these are the places where some of these things come from. You think about these phrases about going the extra mile, right? This, that's from the Sermon on the Mount. Casting pearls before swine. We all know what these things mean. They're, they're bywords. They are shorthand for various truths and truisms. A wolf in sheep's clothing, Matthew 7. The blind leading the blind, Matthew 15. Having a cross to bear, when Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. Reaping what you sow. Those who live by the sword will die by the sword. These are all sayings of Jesus that have come into our culture that we know that even if somebody's never heard of Jesus, they know these sorts of phrases. Doing something at the 11th hour. Washing your hands of something. But there's no phrase or no parable that has made its way into the consciousness of our culture more than this parable that I read here this morning, the story that is called the, the parable of the prodigal son. This parable and the good Samaritan, I don't want to, you know, the good Samaritan and the prodigal son probably are the two parables that no, make their way into the culture without even knowing that they are from Jesus. And the idea of the prodigal son has been the subject of multiple painters, musicians, storytellers. Maybe among the most famous is Rembrandt's painting, The Return of the Prodigal Son. I have a copy of it hanging in my office, but the original is a 10-foot-tall painting hanging in the Hermitage Museum in Moscow. It's one of the most famous depictions of this scene. Henry Nouwen wrote a reflection on it. Shakespeare used the themes of the parable three times in The Merchant of Venice, As You Like It in The Winter's Tale, in our own pop culture, you too. Iron Maiden, for those metal fans out there. Kid Rock, Dirks Bentley, and countless others have taken a crack at retelling the story in song. So embedded is this story in our culture that even L.A. hip-hop act House of Pain in their classic jump around, reference it. And I quote, word to your moms, I came to drop bombs. I got more rhymes and the Bible's got psalms. And just like the prodigal son I've returned, anyone stepping to me, you'll get burned. So next time the rally monkey shows up at Angel Stadium, you'll think of Jesus, of course. All right. Thank you, everybody, for that. All that's to say. All that's to say that the story is taken on a life. Don't, by the way, that song is not a Christian song, just to let you know. Don't go too deep into the lyrics there. But the story has taken on a life of its own, has it not? As a matter of fact, it's probably redefined what the word prodigal means. If I were to ask you, what does the word prodigal means? it would probably not look like the dictionary definition. Let me see if it matches up. If you were to look up the word prodigal in the dictionary, it's an adjective, and the word prodigal means... Anyone? Anyone take a guess? Someone who spends money freely or wastefully or extravagantly. It's an antonym of frugal. If you're frugal, you're careful with your money, if you're prodigal, you are extravagant or wasteful with your money. The word prodigal, however, in our culture, 
has come to mean something very different. So if something, and probably the idea that if something has been long lost and has now come home or been found, it is prodigal. So like, for example, I am not typically, but every once in a while, late with the receipts to the church credit card. So I'll take people out to lunch, save the receipt, but I have to, we have to account for that, so I turn them into Gordon. And so this last time I was a little late on the receipts, and I told Gordon, the prodigal receipts are in your box, the long lost receipts, right, Gordon? So, and I even, I use the word incorrectly, but it has come to mean this idea of something that has gone far, far away and been lost and has now returned and been found. That is now, in our culture, very much the popular meaning of the word prodigal. It's usually shorthand for something that is long lost, but has been returned. So, all this to say, and when we come to any passage of Scripture, one of the first things we have to do is we have to ask ourselves, do I come to this passage, does it have a reputation? Are there things in it that I'm expecting to see that perhaps sometimes the things we expect to see in a passage of Scripture are sometimes not always either the things that are there, or maybe if we take a good fresh look, we might see new things that we aren't expecting. So in this case, we come this morning noting that we have an experience with this passage. It is is the most well-known passage, the most well-known story that Jesus tells in our culture today. And so when we come to the parable, we have, it has a reputation. It can color our reading and our expectations. And so this morning, what I want to do is I want to take a fresh look at the parable and see what God has for us. You guys with me this morning? It's a great parable. It's one of the most beloved. It's, it's very emotional. Even to study the parable again, it's a very emotional parable. And Jesus is telling of it in the situation that he does shows, again, the charm of Jesus as a storyteller. And we note even in our lives when someone who has the charm of a good storyteller, that we are sit and we are enwrapped and we feel things that we might not otherwise feel. And parables are a way to come in that back door. It's indirect communication. If, we've, if all other communication is broken down, one of the best things we can do is to say, let me tell you a story. And that drops down people's defenses, and Jesus knows that full well. So let's explore the story, and what I'd like to do today is, well, first of all, here's the idea. The first thing is this, naming the parable, and this is where we come to this, because the parable has been named the parable of the prodigal son, but naming parables has been sometimes difficult business when we do our work in the parables, and among scholars, most scholars today would admit that the name, the parable of the prodigal son, is not an adequate name for the overall point of the parable. The prodigal son may be the first half of the parable, but there is another brother, an older brother, who has his own issues, which has led some to call this parable the parable of two sons or the parable of two lost sons. But if we name parables, parables are often named by the first line of the parable. Look in 1511. What is the first line of the parable? Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons. And so rather than perhaps the parable of the prodigal son or the parable of the two lost sons, perhaps we need to find a new name in light of the central figure of this parable, which is the man 
who has two sons. Or the story of the father and his two lost sons on this today, Father's Day. So as we note in this parable that we have three main characters, we're going to take a look at all of them, but we want to make sure that we land in the place that Jesus is pointing to with the parable. And that is, this is a parable about a father, and what we're going to find is that this is a parable about a strange father, about a father who does not behave like the, what a good father probably would have been expected to do or what an average father would have done in first century Palestine. There's actually three points in this parable where the father in this parable does not behave like a first century Palestinian father. And sometimes we forget that because we're 2,000 years removed and the parable has a reputation and we tend to think, oh, of course, this guy, this compassionate father, this, this, this father does things that other fathers would not have done in that day. And Jesus tells the story to punctuate those things. And so today what I want to do is I want to keep a special focus on the Father today and to pay attention to these three moments when he does not behave like a typical first century Palestinian Jewish father. Are you guys with me? All right. Now with that said, it it helps us have ears to hear the parable. Maybe we can hear some fresh things about this parable. So look at 1511, and he said, there was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, father, give me the share of the property that's coming to me. And so he divided his property between them. Now this is the very first place in the parable, and it's right off the bat, where the father behaves in a way that probably no other Palestinian first century Jewish father would have behaved. And that is, He honors the request of his son to give the inheritance before he himself is dead. And so here's what we have to say. As Jesus tells a story, okay, he often begins with something that would get his audience's attention. In this case, the man's son asks for the inheritance early. Father, I know that you're old and you're not dead yet. And I know that according to Deuteronomy chapter 21, 15 through 17, that my older brother is, is, he's owed two shares of the inheritance. So if that's the case, then if you would divide everything you own into threes, into three parts, and then give me the third, essentially, that comes to me, let's try that. Let's do that. Could you do that for me? Now, here's the deal. In, if you're Jewish, well, I guess there's a number of things to say. One is that it's not like you can just go and liquidate an account, a 401k. There was no banking per se in the ancient world. There was no such thing as this kind of invisible cash or even paper money. It's not like you could just go in and peel off a few hundred dollars. It was all either in coinage, but even with coinage, you could not have the family wealth all in liquid coinage. The way you carried wealth, especially in the Jewish world, was with land. And land was the promise of God, was it not? Coming into the land of Canaan, the promised land, that you would have land and that your land would be your inheritance. And this idea that the land that we own, this is the family land and it will pass on to you. But to liquidate the family land 
would have been a shame in the ancient world. This was the promise of God. This was what we would get for generation after generation after generation. And the younger son is saying, hey, look, I, I want to take all this and I want to go somewhere else. I don't want to be in the family. I want to go out and find my own fortune. And so what we're gonna, would you liquidate a third of your estate for me? So if, if Jesus is telling the story and those, are, those who are listening to it, the scribes and the Pharisees, and they're hearing this, this, this young man, he's got a lot of nerve. He's got a lot of nerve to ask this question. But at the same time, this father, to do this? Shame, shame on him. And when I say that, literally, shame on him. There's no way you can liquidate a third of your property without people knowing about it. In the village, in the town. Land that's been held for generation after generation after generation after generation, and now you're going to sell off portions of it so that you can feed the request of an idiot son. This is the first time in the parable, and there's two more to come, where this father does not behave as a sensible first century Palestinian father. I don't know how you would respond to a request like that those fathers, or, or any of us among here. So the request would have gone against the sensibilities of the day, but equally scandalous is that the father grants the request. Look at verse 13. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had. So after liquidating, not many days later, they have to sell off this stuff. He liquidates this. He now has movable wealth, probably coinage, other things, perfumes, scents, Whatever, they could, whatever you could make into movable wealth, he gathers up. He gathered all he had. He took a journey into a far country. And the idea was that he went to the Gentiles. We know they're Gentiles. Why do we know the land that he goes to is Gentile land? Because he ends up feeding pigs. Wouldn't have been in Israel. Gentile land. He's feeding pigs. So he goes off into this far country. And he squandered his property in reckless living. So the son liquidates the assets, goes into a far country. He's reckless. It does not necessarily imply immoral, but more foolish. It's the older brother who will say, after never hearing a word from his young, the younger son when he comes back, he says, you devour, he devoured your wealth with prostitutes. How does he know? He doesn't. He just assumes this is foolish. It may or may not be immoral. But for sure, whether it, it's foolish for sure, but it's also unlucky in other ways. Let's keep going. So he spends everything, and it says this. When he had spent everything, a severe famine arose. So spending everything was foolish. A severe famine is unlucky. Severe famine is unlucky. Whether or not God caught, in the parable, again, sometimes we get so invested in these parables where like these people didn't even exist. Like Jesus is telling a story, right? These are, these are fictitious people, but they, they get at the heart of what we're feeling. The famine is unlucky. And then, so he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that far off country who sent him in the field to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate and no one gave him anything. So three things happen. He's foolish. 
He's reckless. He's unlucky with the famine. And he finds himself in a country that does not practice hospitality well. And those three things end him up in a pig pen feeding pigs. And, and the implication is that he's living among the pigs. He finds this landowner. It says that he hires himself out. Our translation, the ESV, says he, he hires himself out. That's not what it says in Greek. It actually just says that he attaches himself to a citizen of that country. And the idea is that he's lost everything, and he's got to find a way to stay alive, and so he attaches himself to a citizen of that country. We don't know if it's a friend or whatnot, but what we do know is that this person that he attaches himself to does not want him around. And we know that because if we ever have an employee that we don't like, or we have someone that we don't like around, what we do is we give them jobs that we know they hate. And in this case, what does the man do? He says, oh, I got a job for you, young Jewish boy. Why don't you go out and live with the pigs? Why don't you be responsible for herding them and feeding them? And then you can just eat whatever else they don't. That's a way of shaming a young Jewish boy. And to the hearers of this parable, what they have found and what they have is they now have this, this conflict this conflict of he's brazen and foolish, the younger idiot son, but he's also been unlucky and he's also now in a country where the Gentiles are treating him poorly, of course, because those dirty Gentiles. So as they're hearing the story, it's like listening to the news. They're angry at everybody. They're angry at the young man. They're angry at the Gentiles. What do they do? And so here's, here's how Jesus keeps going with in the story. So the young man has wasted his family inheritance, being shamed by Gentiles in a foreign country. Look at verse 17. When he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, and I perish here with hunger? I will arise, I will go to my father, I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. All right. Oftentimes, and this is, there's a little bit of a split among scholars, because oftentimes this point in the parable is seen as a turning point in the parable, as a point of repentance in the parable. And there is some evidence that he is repenting, that he's saying, I have sinned, I'm not worthy, but I'm going to put forth a case that I don't think that he's being repentant here. And here's why, okay? And again, Agree to disagree, and it's okay, but I, I'm just going to make the point here. And there's good Jesus-loving people that would say the younger son is repenting here, and there is some evidence for that. But there's also evidence that he's simply doing this for himself. The first thing is this. It says at the beginning, when some translations say, when he came to his senses. But in Greek, it doesn't say when he came to his senses. It says when he came to himself that he's thinking about his own self-interests here. What will be better for me to stay here or to go home and to weigh this? And then the way he crafts his message is that he does not want to come back to the Father. He doesn't even say he wants to be a son. What does he want to be? He wants to be a hired servant, a wage earner. That this is not about, I'm so sorry, I want to come back as your son. This is, I'm so sorry, let me come back and repay my debt. 
which I suppose is a, is a turn of heart, a change of heart, but it might not be actual repentance. And here's another reason why. This is where we see, we, we bring in what we talked about last week. So in, in Luke 15, 1, this occasion where you've got, the, you've got tax collectors and sinners coming and eating with Jesus and the scribes and the Pharisees saying, why does he do this? And they're grumbling about it. And Jesus tells these two other parables, the parable of the lost sheep and the parable of the lost coin. We talked about them last week. Does the lost sheep come back? No. The parable of the lost sheep stays where it is and is found. The lost coin, does the lost coin jump up and say, here I am? I've sinned against heaven and I'm no longer worthy to be called your coin. No, the lost coin is found. They do not come home. And then one of the things that we find, when the father receives the son back, he doesn't say, my son has come home. He says, my son has been found. Let's look on. So all that, all that to say, those are, those are my, my best arguments as to why he's not coming to a place of repentance. He's coming to a place of self-interest. He has come to himself. Let's keep reading. Look, look at verse 20. And he arose, came to his father. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, felt compassion, and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and before you I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quickly, bring the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, bring the fattened calf, kill it, let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Here's another, just another interesting point about this at the beginning it's at the very beginning of the parable of the son, he liquidates all these assets and he goes to a far off country. The word in Greek is a makron country. It's makron. When the son returns, when the son returns, it says while he was still a long way away, that same Greek word is there, while he's still makron, while he's still far off, that's when the father sees him. Does the son return in the parable? No, the son is found in the parable. Where is he found? He's found at the edge of town by the Father. Now, we could split hairs on it. I get it, one way or another. If repentance is a better way to think about the parable, and you've always thought about, look, there's, he does come to his senses to some degree or another, okay? Agree to disagree, and that's fine. But to the point here, I think the point that Jesus is making is that this is not a parable about a son who sins and repents and comes home this is about a father, like the shepherd, like the woman with the coin, a father who has to go out and find not just one lost son, but two lost sons. One goes to a far-off country and gets lost. One stays home and gets lost. This is a story about a father, a compassionate father, a finding father, and Jesus is going to make a point with it. In this story, in this, in this portion we just read, this is the second time where we see the father in this parable not behave like a typical, sensible, first century Palestinian Jewish father. And that is this. He runs. 
he runs. See, in Deuteronomy 21, where it talks about dividing the inheritance, Deuteronomy 21, 15 through 17, it talks about how to divide inheritance. But in those verses that follow in Deuteronomy 21, 18 through 19, it talks about what do you do with a stubborn and rebellious son who's a glutton and a drunkard? What do you do with that son? How do you disinherit a son? Let me just read it to you. If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, mothers, and though they discipline him, he will not listen, then his father and his mother shall take hold of him, bring him out to the elders of his city at the gate where he lives, and they shall say to the elders of the city, our son is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of the city shall stone him to death with stones. So you shall purge the evil from your midst, and all Israel shall hear and fear. Now, most Jewish scholars, actually all Jewish scholars, by the way, this is what I did my doctoral research on for my dissertation is inheritance and disinheritance. And I can tell you this, after reading Jewish scholars, no Jewish scholar believes that this was ever actually practiced. It was too much. But what we find is that the later commentaries on this passage provide an opportunity for parents still to accuse their children, but an opportunity for their children to flee in the Mishnah. By the time you get to the third century in the Talmud, they've they've constructed a ceremony for when a stubborn or disobedient son has come home and has lost the family inheritance, they, do, they would do a ceremony called the Kitsatsa ceremony where they would throw down pottery and break pottery in front of the person and say, you are cut off from your people and then banish the person from their, their village. And so this son may be coming back, though that probably was not in, in effect in this day, coming back to the idea that this is still risky but it's a better risk than staying and trying to feed pigs and live on pig feed. I'm going to take a risk. But here's where the father goes beyond Deuteronomy 21. And this is where the father arose and uh, he came to his father. And while still a long way off, the father saw him, felt compassion, and he ran and embraced him. The father is wronged, the father has had to liquidate his assets, and when he sees his son who has wronged him, who shamed the family name, made him a laughingstock in the village, he sees him, he has literally moved in his guts, and he runs to him. Now, we might not think about this because we see people running on streets all the time, right? We actually look up to people who run. I look up to people who run because they're way more fit than me. I look at someone and I'm like, good for you, you're running. Look, in the ancient world, if you are a first century Palestinian father, fathers do not run. Children run, servants run. Those are the people who can be in a hurry because children are foolish and servants are working for somebody. But if you are the head of a household, you stroll. You walk at your own pace. You do not hurry. Fathers, emotions would be for indoors, private, publicly. You did not run. You did not weep. You did not embrace. That's for indoors. What does this father do? 
he sees his son at the edge of town and he lifts up his robe and he just starts booking it. He starts running like no good Palestinian first century Jewish father would have done. Maybe what they would have wanted, maybe what they've longed to do their whole lives. They would have never done it. This father doesn't care. He clearly doesn't care what anyone thinks. He's already shamed himself to the the village. And now he shames himself more. You see, in this parable, it's not just that a son comes back, but a father has to pay the price. And the father has to pay the price because he is publicly self-shaming himself. He behaves like no first century Palestinian Jewish father would. He runs. Then it says he embraces him. It literally says in Greek that he falls on his neck. He's grabbing his son around his neck. And he's weeping and kissing him. This is not what fathers did in public. He will not hear the full speech. He cuts him off before he can get to the second half of his speech. He says, bring quickly the best robe, put it on him. Put a ring on his hand, shoes on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's eat and celebrate. For this son, for my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. His son did not return. He has found his son. Just like the shepherd found his sheep and the woman found her coin, the father has found his son. And we do not hear another word from the younger son in the entire parable. What does he do? We do not know. Jesus will not tell. It's part of a good storyteller. We don't know how the younger son responds to this. We don't know if he continues to be wasteful and a drunkard. We don't know if he continues to be extravagant. It does not matter to the father. But the parable... So we don't hear another word from the younger son. He simply sits dumbfounded, robed, ringed, and sandaled because slaves run around barefoot, but family members have footwear in the ancient world. The ring is a signet ring. If you were going to buy something, you didn't have the money, you could leave your signet to say, our family is worth it. Our family is worth the deposit. So giving him the ring is giving him the family seal once again. Robed, ringed, sandaled. The debt will never be repaid. The point is not repayment. The point is forgiveness. But the parable isn't over, right? It's not the parable of the prodigal son, just the prodigal son. There's another part of this parable because when Jesus tells the story, there's another audience out there. You got your tax collectors and sinners who would have been, yeah, this story is awesome. And you're probably thinking the same thing because we've all longed for the embrace of God. I mean, have we not? And maybe we can still use that. I'll say a couple words about that at the end. But there's another son. He's got two of them. Luke 20, 15, 25. Now his older son was in the field, of course, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. He called one of the servants and asked, what, are these, what do these things mean? 
And he said to him, your brother has come, your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. Probably that word, that phrase safe and sound, your father has received him with shalom, with peace. Rather than the Deuteronomy 21.18 ostracization, he has received him with shalom. It says he was angry and refused to go in. And this is our introduction to the older brother, the dutiful son who is out in the field as every industrious, careful son ought to be. But he was angry and refused to go in. And this is the third occasion in the parable. Talked about the first, when the father liquidates his assets to his own shame, when the father runs to his own shame, and now the third time in this parable where this Palestinian first century father does not behave like a typical, sensible first century Palestinian father, and that is this. He leaves the party that he is hosting. He throws a party, kill the fattened calf, let's fire up the band, there's music, there's dancing. Where's his brother? Where's the older brother? Where's his brother? Where's his brother? He'll be in in just a second. He's out in the field, he's washing up, he's ready to come in. Where's the older brother? He's coming in, I know he's coming in. And then word comes to the father, he's not coming in. What does he do? He gets up from the party that he's hosting and he goes out to him. The father has to leave the party to his shame. See, most fathers in the Palestinian world would have said, I'll deal with it after the party's over because I'm responsible. I have responsibilities at this party. I'm throwing this party. If I'm gone, it will be, it will be conspicuously absent. It will be a shame to the family. But the father says, I got to go out to my own shame. The third time that he does something to his own shame, he liquidates his property to his own shame. He runs and shows public emotion at his own shame. And when his older son will not come into the party, he leaves the party and goes out to him to his own shame. Does this sound like anyone you know, anyone in Scripture, anyone in the Gospels? Jesus would be a good answer, right? To his own shame, he goes out. And this is where we're reminded that there's more than one way to be lost. And we remember that the occasion that Jesus teaches this parable is that tax collectors and sinners were drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. And the older brother is grumbling, saying, how could you do this to your younger son who has come and devoured your wealth with prostitutes? The tax collectors and sinners were lost. They were not obeying Torah. They had forgotten they were sons of a father who loved them. They had forgotten they were sons of Israel. So God sent Jesus to find them. They were far from home. And God sent his son to find them. The Pharisees and scribes were lost. They were lost obeying Torah. They stayed home obediently. They had, obeyed, they had obeyed meticulously, but they too had forgotten that they were sons of a father who loved them.
they were lost, but they were still at home. This story is not about one lost son or even two lost sons. This is a story of a compassionate father who will, to his own shame, go out and find whatever needs to be found. Whether it's one of 99 or whether it's one of 10 like the lost coin or whether it's two of two that are lost. We never hear how the older son responds either. The parable ends open-ended. We don't know what the response of the younger son is. We don't know what the response of the older brother is. And you could imagine the Pharisees as Jesus, the Pharisees and scribes to whom Jesus is telling the story, Jesus tells the story and they're like, well, what, how does it end? And Jesus says, you tell me. You know, one of the things I feel like we've lost most as we're in these waning days of the COVID-19 pandemic and as we come out and we're, we're face coverings optional here now and we've had this kind of reopening in California and we're going to probably see things reopening. But one of the things as I reflect on this season, there were things that I, I, I actually appreciated about the, the lockdowns. You know, it slowed the pace of life and there were things, some reflection and some time with family around the table. There were things that I didn't appreciate as much and we, we could go on and on about that, but no need to go, uh, you know, sour grapes or whatnot. But one of the things that I feel like we as a culture and we as a church and I as a, as a person have lost and have missed mostly during this time is simply embracing. I don't know how starved you are for a hug from someone who's not in your family. And maybe even in family, you've been like, hey, we got to keep our distance. But even at church, the idea that I could come up and that we could share and embrace on a Sunday morning because what, what binds us together is more than what separates us. That we might find ourselves in an embrace. I have Rembrandt's pain. And it, re, and it reminds me, even at the beginning of the, the pandemic, I remember just looking at that and saying, that is a horrible COVID-19 picture, right? But oh, how I want that. To have a father that would run out, COVID-19 restrictions be damned, we embrace. Thank you, cdc.gov, my, my watch picked me up. Like, I'm asking questions about COVID-19. All right, thank you very much, Siri. Let's turn you off. Um, God will come to you. Whether you've stayed at home, whether you've gone far off, sometimes we do, or whether you've stayed at home and you've simply forgotten about the compassion of God, I will tell you this. God will go out to you at his own shame he will find you. He will grab you and embrace you and kiss you. Because that's what good fathers do on this Father's Day. And what I would encourage you to do today is to find somebody, look, if it's still, if it's still COVID-19 season, someone from your household, 
and embrace them and hold on to them for a little longer today. Because again, we don't get the actual arms of Jesus around us. We might have to imagine it, but what we're told is that we are the body of Christ. The only way that Jesus hugs us is by the arms of your brothers and sisters here. And whether that's someone from your household or someone else, I would just urge you, let's return to embrace. It'll take time, and it's not going to all happen all at once, and I get it. We still need to be cautious. But the goal, the goal of the kingdom is to return to embrace. It's the heart of the Father. And if you are far off, I want you to know, if you just turn and look at God, He will run to you. He rejoices that you come. What is God's posture toward you? If you're far off and lost, He will run to you. If you are at home, dutiful, but lost, he will go out to you at his own shame. He has paid a tremendous price in the parable, but literally in his son Jesus, who has paid that price to shame himself, to go out and to embrace those who are far off and lost, those who are at home and are lost. Let's pray together. Father, we, this parable is um, significant. And even now, would you just imagine the Father coming out to you, running, almost tackling, falling on you, embracing you. Kissing you, restoring you. Speaking words of affirmation to you. There will be time for behavior modification down the road. There's time for that. But for right now, it's time for embrace. Would you just take a moment to just to feel that? Father, we pray, we ask that your Holy Spirit would just help us this morning to feel that embrace. And even as we go from here and as we spend this day with people we love, that we might experience an embrace that reminds us that you love us at your own cost that this is not about repayment, this is about forgiveness. And this is about an invitation to celebrate because our brothers and sisters were lost and now are found. Father, we love you and we pray in Jesus' name, amen.